Friends, welcome back to the 2022 Princeton Forum on Youth Ministry. We're so, so grateful for all of you who are here. People undoubtedly will sort of be trickling in the room because it's 8.30. We decided to um, put our earliest morning on our last day, just as kind of a practical joke for everyone. So I hope you've enjoyed that. We like to mix things up, you know, make you comfortable. And friends, um, I am so honored to introduce you today to the two leaders who are our final lecturers for this year's forum, our friend, the Reverend Dr. Amanda Drury, and our new friend, Wendy Puffer. Dr. Drury, or Mandy, as she is known to her friends, is an associate professor of practical theology at Indiana Wesleyan University, where she teaches classes like Contemporary Theological Trends, Partnering with Families in Youth Ministry, teaching the Bible to adults, and so, so many more. She is a prolific scholar, writer, speaker, and preacher, and it is through one of her sermons preached here at Princeton Theological Seminary at an event we had with the Institute for Youth Ministry that I learned to repeat with emphatic emphasis in the face of those who do distrust God's work in the world in and through young people, you're gonna to wanna to jot this down and remember it, there is no Holy Spirit Junior. She is the author of Saying is Believing, The Necessity of Testimony in Adolescent Spiritual Development, and has a forthcoming book that I cannot wait to read, a very timely one. It's titled Testimony and Trauma, Integrating Trauma into the Life of the Church. A fellow Enneagram Four, she is as creative as they come. The director of the Imaginarium, a Lilly Endowment Initiative on Congregational Innovation for Youth and founding director of The Brain Kitchen, an after-school program that cultivates wonder and resilience through the combination of cooking and activities and midline crossing movements for elementary school children in Marion, Indiana. And speaking of Marion, Indiana, Mandy has introduced us to her friend and collaborator, Wendy Puffer, who is the founder and chief design officer at the Marion Design Co., a community-based creative design studio run by a team of both interns and professional designers whose mission is to revive, empower, and propel community forward by creating sustainable design solutions developed through research, design thinking, and collaboration. Wendy is a social designer and a registered interior designer who believes that design can change people's lives. She is passionate about teaching students the importance of faith integration as designers. Wendy's reason for creating these systems uh, is, it really stems from how she views design as a way to serve people. If you haven't yet, I really wanna strongly encourage you to check out her website, mariondesign.co, M-A-R-I-O-N, design.co, which will inspire you to dream about what collaboration and community really looks like when people combine their gifts, their needs, and their experiences. Friends, would you please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mandy and Wendy. Thank you, Megan. Uh, Wendy's gonna join me here in a little bit, but first, Grace Woodard is going to, to join me. I first met Grace when she was a student at Indiana Wesley, and she was actually a student of Wendy's, uh, Wendy was an associate professor of art and design, of social design for social impact, all these wonderful things. 
Wendy introduced us as a student intern to be doing some design work. And the plan was, okay, well, we'll work with Grace. And then when she graduates, we'll work with someone else. And that was how many years ago? Five. Five? five? We can't quit Grace. Uh, it's, it's pretty common to be able to find people who are good at art. I mean, it takes some, some search, but you can find artists everywhere. It's hard to find artists that also have a theological imagination that you can give a you know, small direction to and they, they know the Bible. They are in communication with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they can just infuse life into their work. And that is what, that is what Grace does. So the original plan was I was going to hire Grace just to make up a few slides for me. And then I thought, oh, well, what about if you were the slide? <laughs> what about if you came up and just drew what, uh, what it is we're doing? So she's going to be up here this whole time, hopefully adding a little bit of color to the words that we share. And Wendy will be joining me up here momentarily. So thank you so much. I, I love being back here with all of you in person, especially. But uh, when my daughter was five years old, her name is Clara, when she was five, she was convinced that she was dying. I picked her up from kindergarten and she got in the car and she was just very sullen, very morose. If you know Clara, normally she's, she's like chirpy and energetic and always has something to say. And she was, she was quiet and quick to cry. And we, we could not figure out what was going on. We were asking her questions, you know, looking through her backpack, looking for any clues as to why she was so off. And couldn't come up with anything. Eventually we decided, okay, let's put her to bed and maybe she just needs a reset button, you know, put her to bed, wake her up on the other side, see how she is. And she woke up the next morning and it was the same thing. Quick to cry, just very sad, very withdrawn. And I'm driving her to school and right as we are about to pull into the parking lot, this very quiet voice from the back asks, Mommy, if someone eats paper, does that mean they're going to die? And knowing where this was headed, I said, oh, oh, no, Clara, no, people don't die if they eat paper. Pause. Clara, honey, did you eat some paper? And the tears just came, and she said, yes. And she had nibbled off the corner of a little piece of paper at school the day before. And a friend of hers had told her that now she was going to die because people can't eat paper. And Clara had spent the last 18 hours convinced she had some kind of ticking time bomb in her stomach. This was a traumatic experience for Clara. Not for me, I knew her life was never in danger. I didn't have the same level of trauma. And, and by trauma, I'm gonna be uh, pulling from Serene Jones' definition here. So trauma, what she has here is an event where a person or persons perceive themselves or others as threatened by an external force that seeks to annihilate them, which they are unable to resist and is beyond their capacity to cope. That word perceives is key here. It didn't matter that Clara's life was never in danger. The fact that she thought she was going to die meant that that was traumatic. Uh, one of my favorite mantras in youth ministry, this is just a side note, is to assume trauma before drama. When you have a kid that's doing something that you just don't understand, it just makes you roll your eyes 
there, there's probably something there even if you can't see it. Of course, the whole world has been experiencing a kind of trauma the last few years that is more than mere perception. We could, uh, in fact, remove that word trauma and write COVID. <laughs> COVID, an event where a person or persons perceive themselves or others as threatened by an external force that seeks to annihilate them, which they are unable to resist and is beyond their capacity to cope. Traditional models of youth ministry were not designed for pandemics. Traditional models of youth ministry were not designed for the staggering mental health crises we are seeing among young people. But thankfully, our faith is not in models, but is in a person who is living and active and breathing and has something to say about trauma. The fact that we have a crucifixion right in the center of Holy Week has led many to say that the Christian faith has, has trauma at its very ground level. So consider this definition one more time. Crucifixion, an event where a person or persons perceive themselves or others as threatened by an external force that seeks to annihilate them, which they are unable to resist and is beyond their capacity to cope. In many ways, the church is not prepared for what we're facing. Though in other ways, it's like our faith has been waiting for this moment because when we're surrounded by death and uncertainty and despair, the church has something to say. Words of life and death are the mother tongue of the church. Now, when we have the luxury of time and historical distance, it's easy to gloss over the trauma of the crucifixion. So this is why many before me have called for Christians to slow down our, our spin through Holy Week, to slow down on Holy Saturday, to not just go from Good Friday to Sunday. Walter Brueggemann writes that, while we must continue to uh, speak a risen Lord, we need to slow down. He writes, it is to be noticed and for our purposes important that the church has had very little to say about the second day, that Holy Saturday, the day in between. The two-day accent is evident in the kerygma of 1 Corinthians that has no comment on the second day, and in the contemporary widely shared formula, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And I appreciate this slowing down so that we can take seriously this, this liminal space between life and death, this Saturday. And yet, I think there are limitations with Holy Saturday. My fear is that a person will fall into one of two traps. Either one, she believes she is unable to experience the risen Christ unless she's able to overcome the Friday trauma. I'm stuck here on Saturday. I don't get to experience Easter until I am over this. So in which case, Jesus Christ isn't the antidote, but the reward. Or a second trap. The individual will experience the Easter Sunday of the risen Christ only to be crushed the following day when they realize their trauma is still there. I have seen the risen Lord and I am still a mess. Either I'm doing something wrong or Jesus Christ isn't enough. So I understand the space that Holy Saturday provides, but I wonder if we need a traumatic Tuesday thrown into our language. 
to articulate that one might know the risen Lord, our teenagers might experience the risen Lord and still find themselves mirrored in trauma. Certainly this was the disciples' experience. They saw the resurrected Lord. Jesus said, peace be with you. He is breathing on them. And yet multiple times we hear that they are still huddled behind locked doors in fear. It's possible to have Jesus breathe on you and still be in trauma. Yes, Jesus is alive, but so is the memory of his public trial, his beating, his humiliation, his death. Christ has died, Christ is risen, trauma will come again. The early church is formed in the shadow of this trauma. Early Christians were trying to figure out what it meant to worship with one another while in the shadow of an external force that sought to annihilate them. We see this all throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes of, of a, a, an external force that leaves him so utterly unbearably crushed that he despairs of life itself. The book of 1 Peter was written to a traumatized people, people who are displaced, who are being hunted down. And so when we hear staggering increases of teenage suicidal ideation, of overrun mental health facilities, of despair, numbing behaviors, of, of people in land that are exhausted. We crave the body of Christ. Even if COVID were to completely disappear, even if we never had another reported case, we would still be in this place of trauma, trying to figure out how to navigate the memories and experiences of the last two years. And even when the pandemic is a distant memory, there will certainly be something else to take its place. An invasion, a war, Christ has died, Christ has risen, trauma will come again. The church has something to say about trauma. Youth ministry has something to say about trauma. Whether consciously or not, we have been preparing for this moment right here. Though perhaps, our role has less to do with what we say about trauma and more about how we receive the trauma. So what does youth ministry look like when the world is mirrored in trauma? The churches I'm in contact with regularly are asking questions like, what do we do now? What should youth ministry look like now? I heard some of those questions yesterday. What do we stop? What do we continue? What do we start? And I hear churches talking about empowering youth, about giving teenagers a voice. And yes, I, I agree with that. The practice of testimony is something that is, is integral to the way that I understand how we minister. And yet it does seem a bit presumptuous to talk about giving teenagers a voice. It feels uh, a bit presumptuous to talk about empowering them as if we have all the power and we are offering some as a gift. Because I think teenagers do have a voice. I'm not sure that there has ever been a time in history when teenagers have had more of a voice than they do right now. We don't need to give them a voice, they have one. We don't need to give them a platform, they have plenty. And any talk of empowering teenagers just seems silly when you consider that they are the coveted demographic of Fortune 500 companies, marketing, speaking directly to them. They have platforms in which to testify to their trauma, and they do. 
You don't have to spend too much time on, on social media to see the pain that is just oozing out from their words. They have voice. They have agency. They have power. But you know what I think they're missing? Recognition. A space where their words can be truly received, where they can be seen, because so often the recognition that teenagers do experience is in the form of likes and views. And you know this, you can have 250 likes and still not feel understood, still wonder if anyone's truly gotten your message. You can have a thousand views and still not feel seen. We are not missing words, we're missing recognition. So what does it look like for the church to be a space that recognizes teenagers, particularly teenagers experiencing trauma? And here's the question of the day. What does it look like for the church to construct a space in which the words of a teenager can be heard and received and recognized in such a way that these teenagers feel gotten and see Jesus in that recognition? We see this kind of space constructed at the tomb on Easter morning. We see the trauma there is palpable. Mary, Mary comes to the tomb. She runs away in fright. John and Peter run to the tomb. Uh, looking frantically around, Mary reappears, and she's confused, and she's weeping, and she is so overcome with trauma, she's repeating the same question to anyone who will listen. They've taken away the body of my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. Tell me where he is. I will go get him a broken record over and over again. And, and in her trauma, Mary doesn't even recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. But Jesus recognizes Mary. He receives her word, he speaks her name, and the recognition that Mary receives opens her eyes to recognize Jesus. This whole scene in John 20, I think is a very fitting image for youth ministry. Have you noticed how much running is going on? <laughs> Mary runs from, the disciples are running to, uh, in fact, the, the writer of John is quick to say, the beloved disciple got there first. <laughs> it's like this, this, this big race between all of them, and then they're running out. And the story reminds me of youth ministry because it highlights for us that unless Jesus shows up, we are just a bunch of people running around. Whatever models of youth ministry emerge over the next few years, the ones with staying power will be the ones that can recognize the teenager. I don't mean recognize as in, oh, hey, there you are. But the kind of recognition that can see and hear and receive words in such a way that a young person says, this person gets me. The kind of recognition where a teenager can hear her name spoken aloud and see Jesus. Because unless Jesus shows up, we're just a bunch of people running around. So what does it look like to construct spaces for recognition in youth ministry? If you will allow me what's going to feel a little bit like a diversion for a moment, I want to tell you a story about a group I was a part of about 10 years ago. Through a strange convergence of events, about 10 years ago, uh, my house became this meeting place for college women who had been abused. And over the course of two years, we had 10 women meeting in my living room, 
And these were all women who were in, in different forms of therapy, so this was not meant to be an, uh, a substitute for therapy, but the hope was that these women could come together, could share their stories, and receive recognition. That didn't happen. In fact, the first few months, I was convinced it was a failure. It was awkward. There were all kinds of silences. I was a nervous wreck. You know, we'd ask a question, and there would just be crickets. And about two months in, I thought, this is not working. I need to just, I, I got to shut this down. And then it occurred to me, but they're still showing up. I don't see anything worthwhile going on here, but they are still showing up. And so we had a, a DTR. We had a conversation, just a very blunt, okay, this feels like crickets to me. This doesn't seem like it's working, but you're all still here. So tell me what's going on. What would help this be a space where you felt like you actually could share your stories? And the things that they said surprised me. These were some of the things I heard them say. I wanted to say something, but I figured someone else had something more important to share. I didn't want to take up too much time talking about myself. I like it when you call me by name because then I know you actually want to hear from me. I had it in mind that I would ask a question, a woman would testify, and then we would recognize the words that she said, but I realized I had it wrong. That recognition is not only the response to testimony, the response to words, it's also the invitation to words. That the testimony we receive needs to be sandwiched in recognition. Now, humor me for a moment. Um, tilt your head up so that you're up, looking up at the ceiling and open up your mouth as wide as you can and just stay there for a minute. That feels awkward, doesn't it? I hope if you're watching at home, you're doing this as well. Uh, okay, heads back down. That's a really awkward posture to be in. Uh, you probably have never done that particular movement here on campus. But you know where this is considered a normal pose? At the dentist's office. When you are at the dentist chair, you're expected to tilt your head back, to open your mouth. In fact, if your dentist doesn't ask you to open your mouth, you should probably get a new dentist. <laughs> but from the moment you step foot into a dentist's office, you are receiving signals that this is the place where you are going to open wide your mouth. There's rituals of recognition in place from the minute you step into that room. So there's waiting rooms, insurance forms, questionnaires. You're led into a small room. The chair is positioned just so, so that that's what you're going to do. My dentist has uh, pictures on the tiles so that you're drawn to looking up at the ceiling. Every time you enter a dentist's office, you're receiving signals of how to act. There are rights of recognition in place before the doctor even looks inside your mouth. There are rituals of recognition to guide your actions. Every time a teenager steps foot into your space, they're receiving messages about what is expected of them. The physical space itself is telling teenagers how to act. There are rituals of recognition in place that signal to the teenager what is expected to them. In the time that remains, we are going to get really, really, really practical and talk about things like arranging chairs and tables and taking the space that you already have and how can we make this a place of recognition. And before we do, before I invite Wendy up here, I do need to acknowledge the elephant in the room because I've been talking about how current forms of youth ministry 
aren't working, and now I'm giving you advice on how to rearrange chairs. You know the phrase, the uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. In some ways, that might sound like what we're doing here. But, but there's two reasons why I think this is a bit different, why, why I'm focusing on this, is, is number one, whatever models of youth ministry emerge, we don't want ministerial whiplash. We don't want to turn the boat so quickly that people fall off. Uh, but more importantly, more importantly is that in order to discern and develop these new models, we have to have young people intricately involved in these conversations. We can't create these models without the minds and hearts of young people. And we want to create the conditions in the spaces we already have so that we can hear and receive and recognize the words of the teenagers we want to minister alongside. So with that said, Wendy, if you will come join me. Wendy is one of my, my dearest friends, and I always love it when she comes over because she can just give, it's my house, she might just mention one thing or two, and I feel like every time you come, my house is transformed without me spending any money. <laughs> That's the key part. That's the key part. So um, I'm going to move this here and, and, and share things. So. Um, Although people who know me know I love to spend money. So if you have some. Yes, yes. <laughs> going, to, going to Ikea with Wendy is like going to Disney World. Uh, I've done it once and it was like the highlight of my life. I'm Mickey Mouse. You're Mickey, you're Mickey Mouse, yes. And we're going to have to get close here, I think, to share okay. this. So, okay. So you're, you're listening to us talk here about creating spaces for teenagers. And um, just out of curiosity, what kind of, what shape is your youth room in? I mean like the physical shape. Like just draw it up in the air here. We'll have you draw it in just a moment. <laughs> Everyone's making, oh, there's uh, a lot of rectangles very similar, here. Very similar. I, I had the chance to visit the first, first uh, multi-purpose room in Halle, Germany. I think you should write Halle because that's a great name, Halle. In Halle, Germany, <laughs> a guy by the name of uh, Franke had this, this amazing, conglomeration of, of um, orphans and rich children in this school, this, this self-perpetuating school. And he wanted to create a room where people could hear the word of the Lord, but also see exhibits of exotic animals. He wanted them to have hymn sings, but also hear public recitations of, of poetry. And so he said, I want a room where we can do both. And he created this room like that, where, where all those activities took place. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got this what do we do with this? Right, yeah, I think what is so challenging about the role that you have and the spaces that you're given, and I haven't been to youth group in a long time. My kids are grown adults, so I have no idea what you do during that time. It kind of scares me in some ways. So I respect so much of what you do. Uh, but I do know that most of those spaces feel empty, large, maybe bigger, or disconnected. Um, and some of you have spaces that you feel like work really well. So we have that wide gamut of um, situations. I'm curious, how many, raise your hand if you feel like your space works really well for what you do. Okay, there are a couple. All right. Okay. So I saw some of this, but most of you did not raise your hand. And my, my uh, message to, do, to you today is <coughs> chances are you have everything you need in that space. And so what I want us to do is I want you to walk away today feeling like, okay, I have the assets, here's my assets, this is what I'm gonna do with those, or this is where I'm gonna start with that. So first of all, I want you to think about how you can't make any mistakes, you just try. 
right? And you can move things around, right? These things are not like permanent when you start these things. Also, recognize that what we're trying to do is take what's natural and fit it into something that's not natural at all. You know, every person that walks in that door has a need, unique needs. They're all very different. And no room can meet every need of every person that walks in. But we can try. So when Mandy talks about recognition and how we want each person to feel like they have some place to go, there are multiple ways that you can bring recognition to each person that walks in that room through small things. Um, I would kind of consider overall these two things, assets and the whole principle of biomimicry. And last night, most of you came here and listened to Nate talk about uh, his mission. And what the mission of biomimicry is, is taking what's natural, recognizing it, and applying it to what's not natural. So when you think about the square that, or the rectangle that you drew with your finger, that's very unnatural. Think about it. You don't see any straight lines in nature. Everything's imperfect. Every tree is bent in some way. So why are we trying to make these spaces feel natural when they naturally are not natural? <laughs> so the first thing I would think about is how can you make that space natural? And so why don't we just first start with you pulling out the grid piece of paper that we gave you and just really quickly, don't look at perfection, just draw really quickly the general shape of your room and use the whole space. So you use the whole piece of paper. Just really quick draw the outside lines of that space. Anyone need more paper? Don't worry about furniture or other things, just the things that are permanent. We'll just take a minute to do this. Okay, so if yours was a big rectangle or square, probably, you're probably done. I've been waiting, <laughs> sitting there, waiting for a long time. Now really quickly, throw in where you enter into the room. So it might be from the outside, it might be from an interior space. Put a door in there, just a quick line. Um, you might want to draw an arch to show which way the door swings, I don't know. Don't worry about that. Um, so when you think about this room, it is a giant rectangle, and Grace is drawing that rectangle for us. We notice we have an entrance from the exterior or interior here, and we have an exit door here, which you can only go out, right? We cannot allow us to walk in that space, at least I understand. Some of the assets of this room. Now, this room, we kind of are cheating because it's a beautiful space, right? So there are so many, but it gives me lots of examples for me to talk with you about. So as I'm talking about these things, I want you to think about what your space brings. It may not be in this material, or in this number, but it brings something similar to it. So for instance, this room is a rectangle. So some of the benefits of this room is that it has straight lines and corners. Now we say those are not natural things, but let's use those as assets. So what do straight lines give us? They give us permission to put things up against them. Right? We can move things against them. They belong there. Corners give us more like personal space, spaces where we feel like only a few people belong, right? Um, 
also look at the materials in this space. So for instance, this room, while it's just a big rectangle, there are some things that the designers have done very intentionally to make it feel like you can, you can manipulate the space. So for instance, you notice in this corner there's a brown wood panel that kind of creates a separate space. And there's something that we call thresholds in a space. So there's four different things we're gonna think about. Thresholds are those places where I go from one activity or sense of feeling to another. And those thresholds may be visible, like the most obvious one is the door. Usually there's a panel along the bottom of the edge that you walk across. I know I'm inside the room when I'm this, on this side and outside the room. What's unique about this space too is you had two thresholds that you got to walk through before you got to this space. So one of the things that's a benefit to this space, while that's probably to help keep the sound from out there, it slows down your presence into this room. So if the doors are closed, you have to open two doors. While that might feel like a hassle, as an organizer, it's a benefit to you because you can do some things at those doors. So for instance, let's say you know in the Asian tradition, you naturally take your shoes off at the door. And what if you started having kids take their shoes off at the door? Um, and so maybe there's like a little symbol there that shows shoes so everyone knows where they put their shoes. What we did here in this space is we just took two things that were already in this room, those two coat racks that kind of feel like trees. Herman Miller does a beautiful job with this. And when the doors were both swung open, those were sitting there propped, propping the doors open, almost acting like people greeting you into the space. So it forced you to walk narrowly into the space even though you felt like it was a nice big open space. So one of the things that nature does is naturally things are darker on the bottom and lighter on the top. So thing, we do that in design, like we put dark colors on the floor, we make the scenes white. Those things are assets. But when you think about a forest, for instance, the floor is dark, the ground is dark because there's shadow that plays into that. That mid-range isn't just because of the materials in that space, it's also because of the negative space, the space you see between the things. So for instance, in this room, you've got the dark floor that's interrupted by the dark chairs and the people in dark clothing, right? We add color to the space. But at the mid-range, you notice there are things that interrupt that space. Like for instance, the windows are nice and vertical. And in this case, it feels very much like a forest because they are like wood, you know, trunks standing there. So when you think about standing in a forest, you can see through eventually to the other side as you're looking across. So in that youth space, think about when you walk in there, someone who doesn't feel safe needs to be able to see everything, but you don't want it to be big, open, and flat. You want to add enough variety of heights and color so that they feel like they're drawn to something. And that same thing can happen from the ceiling. So here they've naturally you know, divided up the ceiling with the different heights, but they've also not just put all recessed lights up there, but they've caused some of the lights to come down to add some interest to the ceiling. So think about a forest with the trees. None of those are all the same height. They're varying heights. So what can you do in a space? Like for instance here, if you were to just use string lights, but not just do them in the room, start outside the door like you begin feeling that as you're walking into the space and then bring them into the space and then stop them about at the door. You don't have to fill the whole space, 
And maybe you add it over here because you have a seating area. Does that make sense? So when you think about the sense of recognition that Mandy's uh, mentioning, there are multiple places in this room that we've manipulated to help you feel recognized in lots of different ways. One of the most obvious is just the way we place the chairs. So originally they were straight across. The goal was to look front, right? Not to really pay attention to who's next to you. And that's okay. You know, it's okay not necessarily to, well, it's okay to like only have the focus be on the front. But my guess is you're enjoying this space because you can see the person across from you because you know that person or you want to get to know that person or you see someone you hadn't seen this whole conference. So it like gives you a different level of experience in this space. Also, we have areas over here where we brought like clusters of seating that was already here. And so yours may not be these beautiful leather upholstered chairs, but folding chairs work or little poofs or pillows on the floor. So it can be on lots of different levels that you can bring gathering spaces. So we're taking advantage of this corner. These people, you know, like when you think about most uh, events that we have, no one, you know, not everyone shows up at the beginning of the meeting. So chances are some people will show up late. So it gives them the chance to enter, to not be recognized that they would want, at the time that they don't want to be recognized, but to still be very present in the space. And not to just give those as the cheap seats. So we put chairs at each of the windows as kind of clusters. So you know you're sitting there not alone with someone else. Um, over here we put seats that they can still see us and they can still participate, um, but they came in a little bit late and yet they still get to really enjoy. They still have a front seat. Notice they did not come up here. So they still have a front seat, but it's not in the front. And you notice no one sat in the front, which you all experience that, right? Put plants up here or something that creates a barrier because you feel so vulnerable in the front. So put something in the front that helps the person in the next row not feel like they're sitting in the front row and kind of guards them a little bit. Also think about the fact that nothing in nature sits still for very long. So there's motion all the time and the, the kids are moving all the time. But what in the room is moving all the time that kind of mimics their behavior most of the spaces have some kind of TV screen. So chances are you have some kind of loop or Spotify or something like that that can be showing motion on that screen all the time. And that screen can manipulate the way people respond to it. So it might be slow mo movement. You know, it might be, you know, water streams, something like that. Or it could be really active. So it can be responsive to whatever you're doing in this space. Okay, I'm talking a lot, no, so. No, you're good, you're good. So I heard you mention thresholds, mm -hmm. and uh, you had said that there were four different categories like that right. that you thought people should be paying attention to in their space. Mm -hmm. So thresholds was one. Gathering, so we've talked about gathering, and gathering on lots of different levels. So in other words, if you're only meeting for an hour, and the majority of that time, like what we're doing here, is facing front, there are still going to be other activities that might be happening either when they start. So, so think about how every gathering um, is appropriate to, or gathering space is appropriate to that. And set it all up at the beginning. So um, if you have the, the luxury of having a space that's large enough to do that, set up all those multiple spaces at the beginning so when people come in, they can sit wherever they want to. While this may not be the place that the first activity is, they may feel like sitting in this chair over here. And that's okay for them to do that. 
Um, so think about the gathering, what kind of gatherings you want. So thresholds, gathering places. You've also mentioned home bases as, a, as our, our third space here. Right, so this, um, this is where you'll have to get a little bit creative and know your kids really well. So when you think about going to church every Sunday, everyone has a spot they go sit in in their pew. And it serves lots of purposes. You feel safe in that space. You feel like you belong there, even though your name is not there. But chances are the person who always sits behind you would miss you if you're not there. Chances are the pastor would miss you because no one's gonna fill that space if you're not there. So they'll see who's not there. So create home bases within this space. Now you may not um, necessarily be able to have a space for everyone, but think in terms of the overall need of that person. So maybe you know a person always feels a bit stressed because they just came from work and they need some place to just decompress. Always have that space in the corner where they can just sit and be by themselves. So think about the needs of the people and how you can create that home base when they come in. And some of that too involves seeing where they naturally gravitate towards to pay attention to what they deem as being a home base and then leaning into that and, and, and uh, shifting that space or uh, adding to that space. So we've got thresholds, gathering places, home base, and then uh, transitions as the fourth. Right, so chances are you don't do the same activity the whole time. Um, and so it's not just about transitioning everyone all at the same time, but transitioning a few people or based off of the need. And again, I'll go back to that and say part of mimic biomimicry is recognizing the need of the environment itself. You know, you think about every animal, every plant moves toward food and water and light. So that's the same with kids. They move toward food, water, and light. So wherever you have that, they're gonna move to it. So think about how they get there. So this isn't about the destination, but this is how their experience is when they get there. So when I move into this space, it was much more like interesting as I walked in because there were things to look at and different ways that people could stand. Uh, but also think about some of your spaces aren't easy to create transition spaces. So get some casters and put them underneath the couch or um, get some four by eight cardboard. You know, just about every um, region has some kind of cardboard or paper company or Lowe's possibly, but four by eight sheets of cardboard, which run about five bucks um, at a paper wholesaler, can create beautiful temporary walls. And we have cardboard clips, which I forgot to bring this morning, but Amazon sells these cardboard clips just so you can connect cards, cardboard together, and corners that hold them 40, 90 degrees. Um, so use cardboard. And that cardboard, because it's so cheap, can be tossed, it can be cut, you can cut windows into it, you can let the students set them up, so, and they're different every time. You can also create experiences with those. So recently we just um, did a design thinking session with a group where we created sort of a lab labyrinth space and at every intersection that existed, they were prompted to answer a question. So think about how cardboard can become a part of your play space as well. And I especially love that one. One of the youth groups I'm working with right now, the big challenge they were asking about was, we've got this big gym 
and we have 10 small groups that need to meet. We've got the, the seventh grade boys that are just loud and obnoxious, and we've got the 11th grade girls that actually want to have deep conversations. And what I loved about what you were sharing was, first of all, casters on furniture means you can move stuff around. But if you have just a series of, of walls, you know, just, just corners like this, that can be moved around where people can go and grab their walls to create their own little space, even though they're all in the same, the same room, it creates a certain kind of intimacy that makes me feel like I can share. It's not just this cavernous space where I'm worried about my words echoing. Uh, we do have another tool that we're going to hand out to you here. Uh, so I teach at Indiana Wesleyan University, and through a grant at Lilly Endowment, they have, can you open this for me, Wendy? They have a discovered opportunity grant type thing which we applied for and got, which meant we got to create this little tool for you guys to, to hand out. And so we have one for each of you here. Uh, you won't be able to open them, but you can at least have it in your hand. Uh, no, this is, this is a card tool called Story Holders. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience where a kid said something and there's just this awkward silence afterwards. You don't quite know what to say. I know I've had this with, I was with a group of sixth grade girls, and um, one young girl shared a, a really painful story about what had happened at school today, that day. And she finished, and there was dead silence. And, you know, and I'm trying to, trying to get the group to care for this, for this young lady, and it's, it's, it's awkward, and I'm so thankful she shared, but we're not, we're not recognizing her words well. And so what we have here is just a simple tool to help people know how to recognize the words of others. So if Wendy is about to share a testimony, she's going to share some kind of story, she's going to hand these cards out to the people in her group. And each, each pack here has a set of four. So I might, okay, you're going to be, Wendy's going to be our storyteller. She might be sharing a testimony. And Wendy's going to hand these cards out. So one is, one is the thanker. So you're going to be asking for someone in your group to listen to this story for things that they can be thankful for. So that at the end of the story, they can say, I am really thankful for you know, X, Y, or Z. There's the recorder, maybe someone that's just going to jot down notes. There's the God spotter. So, so a teenager knows their job is to listen to this story and to see if they can, can identify a spot where, where maybe God is showing up. The silent prayer. Sometimes it's nice for someone to just have a role that we say is very important, but that allows them to hold back a little bit. There's witness roles, people who are listening and asking questions. There's this connector role, where your job is to listen to connections. Listen to this story and see if, you, if it reminds you of another story or, or a song or something else. And when, when people have these in their hands, first of all, it gives them something to hold on to, which helps. They know exactly what's going to be asked of them. It gives them a very clear sense of, of how to recognize a story without prescribing what exactly they need to say. So they're listening very carefully to be able to answer that question. Um, can I make a suggestion on a space? Yeah, go ahead. So when you think about how you can accommodate this activity in a space, and this can be used for lots of things, you know, in Trafalgar Square, um, there is a, what's called the fourth plinth. So if you've ever been there, there are three, four plinths all the way across okay. around this square. What's a plinth? A, sorry, a plinth <laughs> is something you stand on, like a, a statue would stand on this thing, or a piece of art would stand on this thing. So usually, yeah, which would be dangerous, so don't do that. 
<laughs> but it's not, it can be multiple levels. Um, on, the, on three of those plinths stand military figures. On the fourth plinth, which is a whole project, they decided, because they ran out of money, to, um, which we can relate to, uh, be, to have artists put work that have messages or meaning or you know, words uh, to tell the public. And so you see this revolving message on this fourth plinth. So you can use this in the same way and create a fourth plinth in your space. So just create like a little height over here, some little square that a person can stand on, or you can use your cardboard and drop it from the ceiling, like just a little three by three piece of cardboard, flat, suspend it over the ceiling and let the person who's speaking stand under that as the plinth. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, we need to pause here for some Q&A, I believe. I think we're at that time. But um, before, before we do, just want to draw your attention back to that John 20 story, this resurrection story. Mary went to the tomb hoping to find a dead body. <laughs> that was what she wanted to find. That was, that was the height of what she could imagine. This is why she is going to the tomb, to find a dead body. And of course, what she found was something much more than she could even hope for. We have teenagers coming into our spaces for all kinds of reasons. Um, some of them settling for things far less than what we have to offer. And our prayer as we're working on this, as we're continuing on this conversation, is that you would be able to welcome young people into your space and to speak with them, to react, interact with them in such a way that they can see Jesus. Let's say thanks. <laughs>